Warning, the radio blared. Please change your plans. Come another night. There's danger in the area. Gentry and his Jesus film team in the Solomon Islands sat still as they listened to the radio call. Discouraged, Gentry pondered their course of action. This was the third time they had tried to send the film team to this area. And again, the village's enemy tribe was too close for comfort. Gentry knew in his heart this village needed to hear the story of Jesus. So he gathered his team and prayed, asking God for direction. That night, Gentry and his teammates sensed they should go through with the showings, despite the warnings. You see, tribal fighting loomed over the area, but they were confident God was at work. Knowing the team was determined to come, the leader warned that they would have to take personal responsibility for whatever might happen to them. When Gentry and his team arrived, the community did not formally welcome them as was customary. The atmosphere was instead filled with fear, so Gentry and his team prayed for God's protection and peace. At nightfall, the showing began, and villagers slowly emerged from their homes, fixated on the screen, fixated on Jesus. As the Jesus film played, everyone fell quiet. Only the message of the movie could be heard in the darkness. Silent and unseen, 30 armed men from the nearby tribe approached the crowd in the dark, hidden behind the cover of trees and using the film's distraction as an opportunity to strike. But as they waited to strike, they heard the words of Jesus in the movie. Then two members of Gentry's team stood up and shared their testimonies, along with the invitation to follow Christ. Soon the attackers came out of the bushes submissively, lifting their arms and weapons. The leader of the armen could no longer hold back his emotion. In tears, he admitted that they had come to fight and to kill, but Christ won us tonight. That night, 478 villagers, including the armed men from the enemy tribe, decided to follow Christ. And over the course of the next few days, peace was restored between the two warring communities. Opposition comes in many forms. Sometimes it's a minor setback. Other times it's more risky, like what Gentry experienced. That's when opposition can be terrifying because it causes us to doubt and lose courage. But my friends, throughout the Bible, when faced with opposition of various types, men and women of faith didn't shy away because they were prepared and recognized the power of the living God with them. In fact, we should not be surprised when we, as followers of Jesus, face opposition. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 reminds us, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. The Bible tells us it is a normal part of the Christian experience as we live this life to face opposition. So what are we to do when confronted with different types of opposition? Let's learn from the Apostle Paul as he faced four different types of opposition in his first missionary journey. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. As you're turning to Acts chapter 13, by way of reminder, we said last week that as voyagers in what we call life, we will encounter life-changing experiences of all forms that can teach us valuable life lessons. And in this sermon series, 
we're studying the journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. What he experienced in those journeys is what we experience in our life today, although with a 21st century look. So the life lessons and biblical principles from what the inspired scriptures record is very applicable for us today. Now let's take a look at Acts chapter 13 and see how the Apostle Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, confronted the various oppositions he faced. I read now verses 1 to 3 of Acts chapter 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Here in these verses we see that the church in the Roman commerce city of Antioch had a diversity of Christians in its leadership, from Jewish Christians from Jerusalem to people from North Africa like Simeon and Lucius, and even those who were among the ruling elites like Manaen, who was from the household of Herod the Tetrarch. Guided by the Holy Spirit, the church leaders were led to intentionally send out Barnabas and Saul to preach the gospel message. So the church prayed over them, and they were officially commissioned to go out and do the gospel work. This was important to do because these were men sent out to do spiritual work, and surely there would be spiritual opposition. It should be no surprise to them that they would encounter opposition because Satan and non-Christians would surely oppose the spreading of the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so they needed all the prayer support they could receive. Verse 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. The Bible tells us, led by the Holy Spirit, they went to the port city of Seleucia and sailed to the island of Cyprus. They initially landed in the city of Salamis, which was on the eastern side of the island. What they did in Salamis was indicative of how this missionary team would operate. They would first visit the Jewish synagogues, which were gathering places for those who practiced Judaism and people who were God-fearers. It was only natural for Barnabas and Saul to go there, because that would be the place where both Jew and Gentile alike, who believed in the one true God, Yahweh, and who were anticipating the Messiah or Savior, would gather. And it would have been a very effective way for Barnabas and Saul to then naturally segue to prove to the Scriptures that Jesus Christ was that promised Messiah, as we will see Saul doing later on in this chapter. Also, usually at every synagogue gathering, there would be an opportunity for those who attended to read from Scripture and share what was on their heart, what was on their mind. This is what we see Jesus doing in Nazareth as recorded in Luke chapter 4. So that's why arriving at the new cities, Barnabas and Saul would first visit a Jewish synagogue. I read now verses 6 to 8. Now when they'd gone to the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. 
This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. In these verses, we are told Barnabas and Saul shared the gospel throughout the island of Cyprus and made it to the other side of the island. At the Roman provincial capital Paphos on the western side of the island, they met a Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, who was a false prophet. His name was Bar-Jesus, literally translated Son of the Savior, which sounds very spiritual, but who was very clearly involved in the demonic dark arts. This is a good reminder to us that even if something sounds spiritual or uses Christian terminology and words or even quotes Bible verses, be aware, cautious, and discerning. For even the devil can masquerade as the angel of light, which 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 tells us he does. This bar Jesus seemed to have some limited powers from Satan and so was thought of as someone powerful. Verse 8 tells us that this magician also had a nickname, Elemus, which means wise. Perhaps his powers included being able to deceive those in the Roman court at Paphos that he could fortune tell, which made him seem wise. Whatever the case, this sorcerer had the ear of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, for those of you who don't know, a proconsul was the highest Roman government official in a region. So certainly, having the ear of the most influential man of the island was personally beneficial to Elymas. Remember that the Romans, with their many gods, were actually quite religious and superstitious. They did many things to please and appease the gods. So believing that Elymas had some powers from the gods made him valuable to have around. Sergius Paulus had heard of the preaching of Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear what these men had to say. But the sorcerer didn't want Sergius to hear the gospel message because he was afraid that if Sergius turned to Jesus, then he would lose his influence and clout with the highest of Roman government officials on the island. So the Bible tells us that Elymas, the sorcerer, opposed Barnabas and Saul, perhaps by bad-mouthing these two men before the proconsul or opposing everything they said. But look what happened in verses 9 to 12. Then Saul who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Let me note a few things in these verses. First, this was the first time that Saul is referred to as Paul, his name in Greek. Saul was his Jewish name in Hebrew. You know, I sometimes hear that Saul was his name pre-conversion and Paul was his name post-conversion, and that's just not true and factual. One is his Jewish name and one is his Roman name, most likely both given at birth. And as his ministry was now primarily to the Greek-speaking Gentiles in the Roman world, it's only natural to use Paul, his Roman name. Well, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, pushed back on this supposedly wise magician and called him out. He called him a fraud, a person who lied, an enemy of righteousness, and a son of the devil. Pretty strong words from Paul. 
in front of the proconsul, he indicted Elymas of being someone who perverted the straight ways of the Lord. And to show the almighty power of the living God Paul believed in versus the limited demonic powers that this sorcerer wielded, Paul temporarily blinded Elymas to the power of the living God. If this magician was powerful and someone worth listening to, then he should have been able to counter Paul with actions and not just with words. And in a bit of comedic irony, verse 11 tells us this sorcerer Elymas was now clumsily looking for someone to lead him around in his blindness. What was the result of all this? Look with me in verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. We're told that the proconsul believed in Jesus because of what he saw, the power of Paul's God over the magician's God, which rendered him blind, and he could do nothing about it. It reminds me of the display of God's power through Moses over the Egyptian gods and the display of God's power through Elijah over the Canaanite gods on Mount Carmel, which resulted in the people who saw believing in the one true living God. Notice also in verse 12 that this miraculous showing of God's power authenticated the truth of the message that Paul and Barnabas preached. You see, in the Bible, and even in the ministry of Jesus, miraculous signs always authenticated the truth of the message. But what was of primary importance was the message of truth, not necessarily the miraculous act. My friends, our focus should be on the teachings and truth of Jesus, with the miraculous signs playing a secondary, authenticating, and affirming role. This is a good reminder for our generation today that wants to focus only on the miraculous, pushing a secondary, the study of God's Word. Because remember, at times, God doesn't always allow for miraculous things to happen, but His words are always true. Anyway, what you have happening in these verses is spiritual opposition. And a response to spiritual opposition is to call out sin and respond with God's truths. This is what Paul does before displaying God's power. He first calls out sin by identifying the sorcerer's words as being deceitful and lies, highlighting the difference between the Son of God and the Son of the devil, and the way of righteousness versus the way of evil. Paul had clearly told the proconsul and all listening about the straight ways of the Lord, showing that he had responded to spiritual opposition with God's truths, not his own thoughts or standards. My friends, as we live in a sinful world, we will constantly have to battle spiritual opposition that comes in many forms. And if we try to frame this spiritual opposition as a battle between good and bad, we will lose. Because what is good and bad is subjective in the world we live in. What is good and bad in your eyes may not be what is good and bad in the eyes of others and in the eyes of the world. In fact, each generation continually redefines what is good and bad. For example, 50 years ago, the culture thought that cigarettes were good, but now we all know they're bad for you. Before, Eggs were supposedly bad for you because of the high cholesterol it brings, but now they're supposedly good for you as a great source of protein. So when we try to frame our spiritual battle as a battle between what is good and bad, we will lose. 
But when you make as your battleground the world standards versus God's standards, as Paul did, then you can engage and fight spiritual opposition because it's not your thinking and beliefs versus the world's. It's God's truths versus the devil's lies. It's about the straight ways of the Lord versus the crooked ways of the world. And God always comes out victorious. Now, putting it all together, we have our first biblical principle. In the face of spiritual opposition, identify sin and respond with God's truth. Identify sin and respond with God's truth in the face of spiritual opposition. As Paul continues in his journeys, introducing the gospel of Jesus Christ to new lands and to new peoples, he will encounter greater and greater spiritual opposition as Satan does not want to cede his foothold. But Paul will almost always respond in the same way, calling out sin, which contrasts one's way of worldly living with God's desire for righteous living and preaching the truth of God's Word, which brings true hope and salvation. What a great model for us to live by in this 21st century where we face spiritual opposition every day. But we don't often see the opposition because we have blurred the lines of what is sin and do not clearly mark what is right and wrong based on God's truth standards. Let us be warned. I read now verses 13 to 16. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. These verses tell us that Paul and Barnabas left the island of Cyprus and were led by the Holy Spirit to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And at Perga, in the region of Pamphylia, their assistant, John Mark, left them for reasons unstated. Notice in verse 13 how the author Luke has now reversed the order of Paul and Barnabas' name. Before, Barnabas was always mentioned first, but now it was Paul's name first, and it was known as Paul's group. This interesting shift not only speaks of Paul taking the lead, but for me, more of Barnabas's focus on the greater kingdom work versus his own personal recognition and his maturity and humility to acknowledge the giftedness of Paul for the mission work with the Gentiles and thus let him take the lead. You know, my friends, many Christian leaders would not do what Barnabas had done, but his model should be an example for all leaders. After Perga, the Bible tells us they came to Antioch in Pisidia, which is a different city from the Antioch in Syria. That's what they had previously done. Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue there and participated in their worship gathering. There, they were invited to share any words of encouragement to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles assembled. Paul took the opportunity to speak and share from Israel's history, which you can read about in verses 17 to 37, about the promised Messiah and how Jesus was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, yet was rejected, crucified, but resurrected. 
Look at Paul's conclusion in verses 38 to 41. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what had been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Paul's conclusion was for them to respond by believing in the salvation and justification that the Messiah Jesus brings. And he concluded with a warning from the prophet Habakkuk about rejecting this truth, lest they perish. Because we know that those who don't place their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will perish, suffering eternity in hell. Look at their response in verses 42 and 43. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Though when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. The Bible tells us the response was that many of the Jews and Gentiles who were in the assembly wanted to hear more. So Paul and Barnabas spent time with those who really wanted to know more and learn. Notice that Paul didn't push them to make a decision on the spot for Jesus. He simply warned them about the dangers of not making a decision for Christ and placed the burden of responsibility on them to respond and for them to ask for more questions and information if they wanted. My friends, this is an approach we can learn from when we encounter people who stand in opposition intellectually to Christianity or who may have a different set of beliefs or worldviews from the Scriptures. We can simply present the truth boldly and clearly and then spend time and engage with those who are interested and want to learn more. You see, when sharing the truths of Scripture, there is no need to debate just for debate's sake. It would be a better use of your time to engage in dialogue and discourse only with people who are ready to learn and to ask sincere questions. This is what Jesus did when his message was officially rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. He no longer engaged with them publicly, but often withdrew and privately spent time with those who were really seeking truth. From this example of Paul, we have our second biblical principle. In the face of intellectual opposition, present the truth and engage those who really want to learn. Present the truth and engage those who really want to learn in the face of intellectual opposition. You see, Paul and Barnabas didn't spend time with everyone in a synagogue gathering. They whet their interest with God's word, the truth, and then let those who want to seek more versus begging all to hear them out. Remember, our Christian responsibility is only to share the gospel truth in words and actions. It is God's responsibility to move hearts. This is a wonderful reminder for us to be patient and not push so hard, especially in this generation. There is no need to destroy relationships with family and friends just because they don't agree with you or accept what you say. Leave the door of opportunity open for gospel dialogue for such a time the Lord convicts them or they come to the realization that they need to hear the truth, that they need a Savior. 
That's why this question is so effective to get people to think. If you were to die today, are you absolutely sure you will go to heaven, especially since you've done some wrong things and entering the heaven requires perfect holiness? Then you can say, if you want to know for sure, just ask me, and I can show you what God says about this. I know for sure I'm going to heaven. And then leave it at that and pray for them that God would move in their hearts. If you leave the door open for them to ask, be sure you're ready to answer. Be ready to share. If you're so sure about your salvation but can't answer if someone asks how they can be saved, then they will wonder if you really know the truth. My friends, be ready to share an answer, even if it's just to know the three to four Bible verses you can turn to to walk someone through the gospel message. Just as Paul was knowledgeable of Jewish culture, history, and apologetics to be able to engage the people in the synagogue, we have a responsibility to know our faith well enough that we can share it. As 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 reminds us, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. My friends, if invited to speak and share as Paul and Barnabas were, would you be able to share your faith and your testimony well and coherently that elicits people to want to ask more questions? I'm reminded of this fable where the donkey said to the tiger, the grass is blue. The tiger replied, no, the grass is green. The discussion heated up and the two decided to submit to arbitration. And for this, they went before the lion, the king of the jungle. Already before reaching the forest clearing where the lion was sitting on his throne, the donkey began to shout, His Highness, is it true the grass is blue? The lion replied, True, the grass is blue. The donkey hurried and continued, The tiger disagrees with me and contradicts and annoys me. Please punish him. The king then declared, the tiger will be punished with five years of silence. The donkey jumped cheerfully and went his way, content and repeating, the grass is blue, the grass is blue. The tiger accepted his punishment, but he asked the lion, your majesty, why have you punished me? After all, the grass is green. The lion replied, in fact, the grass is green. The tiger asked, so why are you punishing me? The lion replied, that has nothing to do with the question of whether the grass is blue or green. The punishment is because it is not possible for a brave and intelligent creature like you to waste time arguing with a donkey. And on top of that, come and bother me with that question. The worst waste of time is arguing with the fools and fanatics who do not care about truth or reality, but only the victory of his beliefs and illusions. Never waste time on arguments that don't make sense. My friends, there are people who no matter how much evidence and evidence we present to them do not have the capacity to understand while others are blinded by ego, hatred, and resentment. And all they want is to be right even if they're not. When ignorance screams, intelligence is silence. Your peace and quiet are worth more. That's why in the face of intellectual opposition, present the truth and engage only with those who really want to learn. This is what Paul 
and Barnabas did. I read now verses 44 to 45. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. The Bible tells us the next Saturday, almost the whole city turned out to hear the word of God from Paul. But the Jews of Antioch and Pisidia opposed what Paul was saying with great vigor, not because they wanted to engage in an intellectual or spiritual discussion, but verse 45 tells us they were simply envious of the larger crowd size that turned up to hear Paul than would usually turn out to hear them talk. What a petty reason to oppose someone. We can call this an emotional opposition on the part of the unbelieving Jews, and envy which drives people to do strange and crazy things was the root of their opposition and not based on intellectual or valid spiritual reasons. And I bet if someone were to ask those Jewish unbelievers why they were opposing Paul and Barnabas, they would not say they were envious of the crowd size they drew. They would probably give another reason, because envy and pretty much all true emotional opposition are matters of the heart which can be hidden behind another seemingly legitimate reason. And that makes it tough for a person who's on the receiving end of emotional opposition to really know the real reason why someone is opposing them. People who are envious of you, insecure about themselves, will pit themselves against you without you knowing and hide their emotions in supposedly valid reasons. Let me repeat that. People who are envious of you, insecure about themselves, will pit themselves against you without you knowing and hide their emotions in supposedly valid reasons. This was the case of why King Saul was so opposed to David, his son's best friend, because he was jealous of David, as 1 Samuel chapter 18 tells us. In fact, King Saul threw a spear trying to kill David while he played a harp, which David was able to dodge, but must have been so perplexed while he was being targeted by Saul. My friends, the range of emotions that drive opposition is not limited to envy or jealousy. It could involve fear, insecurity, disgust, anger, sadness, trust, comparison, and others. We see this play out all the time between siblings or between organizations such as associated churches and schools who have different functions, or between in-laws, colleagues, or co-workers, classmates, cousins, companies, and even the closest of friends. Rivalries which lead to opposition exist everywhere. In politics, in America, it's Democrats versus Republicans. In computers, it's Macs versus PCs or Apple versus Android. In college sports, it's Ateneo versus LaSalle or UP versus UST. In superhero movies, it's Superman versus Lex Luthor or Batman versus the Joker, Marvel versus DC. In the home, it's kids versus vegetables. Emotional opposition results in rivalry. Notice from these verses that these were the same people who had initially invited Paul and Barnabas to share an encouraging word and didn't react after the speech. But now, as the growing crowds in the city wanted to listen to Paul and not them, they made issue with them. 
Now look at Paul and Barnabas' response to this emotional opposition in verses 46 to 48. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. The Bible tells us Paul and Barnabas were very perceptive and called them out on the true reason of their opposition. They told the Jewish unbelievers that they were first given the gospel. They had the privilege of hearing the gospel first, but had rejected it. So the Lord has offered salvation in Jesus Christ directly to the Gentiles now. And they are eagerly wanting to hear the gospel. That is why they have all turned out to hear Paul and Barnabas. My friends, although we may not always know the root cause of someone's opposing actions, if we believe it is because of certain destructive emotions, then you call them out on it, just like what Paul and Barnabas did. They basically told the unbelieving Jews, you have nothing to complain about since you rejected the gospel message, which is so appealing to these people. And in verse 48, most importantly, we see the Gentiles who have no idea what's going on with the passive-aggressive opposition by the unbelieving Jews. They only heard that salvation was available for them and gladly accepted the message and glorified God. And the Bible tells us many came to know Christ as their Savior. From these verses, we can extrapolate our third biblical principle. In the face of emotional opposition, call out unhealthy emotions and affirm positive ones. Call out unhealthy emotions and affirm positive ones in the face of emotional opposition. Jewish rejection led to Gentile hope. And Paul focused on the positive emotional receptivity of the people instead of dwelling on the negative envy of the unbelieving Jews. My friends, don't let the negativity of other people pull you down. Focus on the positive emotions of joy, hope, peace, and love we have in Jesus Christ. Finally, I read verses 49 to 52. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. These verses tell us that the great news of the gospel message spread throughout the entire region. But the unbelieving Jews used people of influence and turned up the heat on Paul and Barnabas by persecuting them and was finally able to get them physically thrown out of the region. But verse 51 tells us Paul and Barnabas shook the dust from their feet, a Jewish practice signifying separation, and they walked away and moved on to the city of Iconium, about 90 miles to the southeast of Antioch, Pisidia, to share the gospel. And as they walked away from this physical opposition, verse 52 tells us they were filled with joy and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. In the midst of what should have been disappointment, anger, and sadness because of the real persecution and physical opposition they experienced, 
Instead, Paul and Barnabas were full of joy and gladness of heart because they were doing the work of God and what they experienced was for the Lord. From Paul and Barnabas' response, we have our fourth biblical principle. In the face of physical opposition, walk away from the fight with a joyful heart. Walk away from the fight with a joyful heart in the face of physical opposition. My friends, there is no need to purposely put yourself in harm's way. If there's a clear and present danger of physical opposition, avoid it and walk away from the fight to serve the Lord in another way. And while it is tough to back down from a fight, it is both the example of Jesus in His life and ministry and what He taught His followers we are to do. While in some oppositions we are to fight back, generally when it comes to physical opposition, we are to simply walk away. In fact, in church history, we find that in times of great persecution, the scattering of the people led to the spread of the gospel message. Persecution in Antioch, Pisidia, pushed Paul and Barnabas along to preach the gospel in another region of Asia Minor, part of God's sovereign plan to spread the gospel in the Roman world. Historian Will Durant once observed, Rome remained great as long as she had enemies who forced her to unity, vision, and heroism. When she had overcome all her enemies, she flourished for a moment and then began to die. Opposition kept Rome strong. It was the same way for the church. Opposition kept the church focused on the work of Christ's great commission and strengthened and matured the believer. Let's remember that in the face of spiritual opposition where we should identify sin and respond with God's truth. In the face of intellectual opposition, present the truth and engage those who really want to learn. In the face of emotional opposition, call out unhealthy emotions and affirm positive ones. In the face of physical opposition, walk away from the fight with a joyful heart. May the example of Paul and Barnabas teach us how to oppose opposition with joy in our hearts to bring the gospel to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these reminders from your word. All too often, we look at opposition and we wish it doesn't happen. But we live in a sinful world and we know that opposition can come in many forms, whether spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, or physically. Help us to respond like Saul and Barnabas with grace, with love, with purpose, with conviction, with boldness, all with a desire to push back against sin and show the world the great news that Jesus Christ alone saves. May how we respond to our oppositions be a living witness and testimony to a world that is watching that we serve a God who is mighty and strong and His truths always overcome all else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.